Most of us know deep down that we need to get our estate plans together or update the ones that we have, and somehow it's just so easy not to get around to it. If you're feeling intimidated by estate planning, you're not alone. If the whole topic makes you feel overwhelmed, listen up. I'm Liza Hanks, and I've spent more than 20 years as an estate planning attorney, and I know for certain that you have enough information, enough education, and enough financial savvy to do what needs to be done. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies you need to know to make better legal decisions and take action to protect your loved ones and yourself. Don't be intimidated by lawyers ever again. Join us for Women in Wills. I was just shocked by what I saw, having really been somebody who focuses on the in-hospital experience. Even as a palliative care person who thinks holistically, I had somehow missed the great impact of what happens when people are discharged from the hospital and what they deal with when they go home. That's Dr. Jessica Zitter, the producer and director of a great new movie, Caregiver, A Love Story that shows just how hard it is to take care of somebody who's terminally ill and can teach us all so much about family caregiver burden, hospice care, and how we could plan ahead to make the best of a really hard time. Well, Jessica, I'm so excited to have you on Women in Wills today. You were one of my most treasured guests when Women in Wills in its first incarnation was life, death, law. But I decided it's really important for us to focus on women's role in negotiating old age, sickness, and death, which is another way of saying life. And you've done this incredible movie. Let's talk about caregivers. Well, I just want to first say, what a treat to be back here with you. It's always fun to talk to you. And I'm really excited to hear that you're focusing on women, because I think women, as we can see in the caregiver public health crisis, are often the people upon whom a lot of the burden falls. So, you know, Caregiver is a new movie that came out right before the pandemic, which was a really interesting time to have a new movie come out. And it was the result of a series of footage that I obtained about my friend Bambi Fass years ago. She had invited me in to, to document her experience. It was going to be this beautiful hospice death. Her quality of life improved significantly as soon as we called in hospice. And the point I thought of this film was going to be to really look at this wonderful woman character and show her experience with this wonderful choice that she had made, hospice. And it was only after she died, two years after she died, that I saw this footage in a sort of rough cut that my co-director put together. And I realized, much as I love Bambi, much as she was this incredible character, the story really was about her husband, her husband Rick, and what he went through in caring for her with the support of hospice, but really being her primary caretaker. I was shocked when I watched his personal deterioration. I thought Rick was going to be a secondary character in this movie, the guy who opens the door for hospice, you know, the guy who brings Bambi a cup of tea. But it turned out that Rick's story was really the one that we needed to hear even more. And um, I was just shocked by what I saw, having really been somebody who focuses on the in-hospital experience. Even as a palliative care person who thinks holistically, I had somehow missed the great impact of what happens when people are discharged from the hospital and what they deal with when they go home. And I, I saw it in this in this film that I had commissioned to make. So it set me off learning more about the, the crisis of family caregiver burden. It is a rising public health crisis. The demographics profoundly concerning and changing and worsening in the sense that our baby boomers are aging, 
People are living longer with very serious chronic illness. Families are dispersed. You know, they're they're not as big as they used to be, and there just aren't as many people around to do the caregiving role of these aging people. And so the numbers are staggering. One in five Americans is a family caregiver. Women are much more likely than men to be family caregivers, which is important for the podcast. You know, I looked that up before we spoke. Between 53 and 68% of caregivers are women. It's incredible. And 80% of the women, 80% of the people who left the workforce during this pandemic are women because who's going to care for the kids? So yeah, I think this is an issue for everyone. I think Rick was an incredible mensch, right? To use a technical term. I mean, he left his job to care for her. He dropped everything. And he was taking care of a three-year-old grandchild to boot, a guy who sacrificed everything for the people in his family, which is so often a role for women. And I thought it was kind of brilliant that in this case, it was a guy, you know, it really humanized I think it was an interesting choice, actually, as a storyteller. Don't forget, it wasn't a choice. This was a mistake. I stumbled upon this story thinking I was making a film about about a woman. It really was a surprise that it was actually not her. And and I think I, I think that this brings up a really important point about caregiver burden, which is that it's really an invisible crisis. We aren't seeing these caregivers. We're not paying attention to their stories yet. I think it's there's a rise in awareness about family caregiver burden. The number of articles coming out in the New York Times alone around family caregiver burden is striking. And COVID clearly has exacerbated that because COVID has made this crisis of family caregiver burden so much more drastic. We don't see these people. Maybe doctors don't see people, but I can say that when your loved one gets sent home from the hospital, I've been in that experience a couple of times now, and hospice comes over and they set up the bed and they give you a whole bunch of medicine and they say, we'll be back in four days for for 45 minutes. And you're like, well, now what do we do? So it's not an invisible situation when it lands in your living room, which I think is true for so many people. But what I was hoping we could talk about some is to educate my listeners about what hospice can provide and what hospice can't provide, and maybe some proactive tips to how do we talk to the discharge people at hospitals who, you know, have a, I mean, there is a law in California, which I was not aware of from, I learned from you, that they're not supposed to discharge somebody without proper care, but it happens all the time. So I'm hoping we can explore that territory too. Great, great. No, I I think these are all the right questions that you're asking. I think one of my biggest fears as this film started to evolve, because hospice is there, people are expecting that hospice is going to take care of everything, including Rick. And my biggest fear was people were going to come away from this film saying, what the heck was hospice doing? Where the heck? Hospice was there and they didn't take care of Rick. And that, that hospice was going to be thrown under the bus, which was my fear, because hospice is truly an amazing service. And hospice is the reason that Bambi was able to be at home, which is where she wanted to be. And yet hospice really, there's a a perception in society that hospice is supposed to take care of family caregiver burden, which is completely unrealistic. That is not what hospice is paid to do. Hospice gets paid about $200 a day to take care of people like Bambi. And they are managing medication oversight, durable medical equipment management, there's a team that's around there trying to take care of really important medical pieces and all of this sort of daily hygiene and shopping and cleaning of the house. That is not under the purview of hospice. People don't realize that. And that is probably the bulk of what families need to be dealing with at home. So we've got this unrealistic expectation of hospice. People lose trust in hospice. And yet hospice is this critically important function in our society that we really need to appreciate for what it does. We just need to supplement 
what hospice is doing. So your question, your second question is about the issue of, well, how can we discharge families with a more realistic expectation of what they're going to get with hospice if they have chosen hospice for this period of person's life? Is, is important. I mean, our social workers, my social worker that I work with and who has taught me so much for years has been telling me that there is this rising crisis of family caregiver burden, but I wasn't honestly paying as much attention. She would say, we've got to be clear with this family that they are going to be responsible for the bulk of the care. And I was sort of afraid to say that to people because I was afraid that then they'd say, well, I don't want to go to hospice, send her to a nursing facility when the patient really wanted to be at home. So there's this real problem in that people want to be at home and hospice is the way to do that, but they're not going to get this sort of fantasy view of what we all think hospice should be doing, which is unrealistic. And so it's a real tug of war in the hospital. And a lot of times families are getting discharged home with patients going to hospice without any real understanding of what they're going to be asked to do. Right. Which is where I think this conversation could be helpful to my listeners. I would hope that everybody listening to this podcast has at least an advanced healthcare directive and a power of attorney in place to deal with incapacity. But all of all that does is authorize somebody to act on behalf of the sick person. It doesn't tell them anything about how, you know, or what needs to be done. And I think, especially in modern American life, when so many of us are isolated, far from our families, don't know our neighbors, aren't part of churches, aren't part of communities. Where do you turn for help? I would love to hear from you in, in the work that you've done and, and in the screenings you've done of this movie of ways that people have reacted to this or thought about, how can I put these pieces in place ahead of time? How can I think it through? Who's going to help me with the laundry and the cooking and the driving and the sleeping yeah. and the respite care? You're getting all of the real key issues. One thing I've found in showing this film around, the family caregivers are profoundly appreciative because they feel seen. Again, there's this invisibility to being a family caregiver in our current society. There isn't this awareness of this role. And there's a lot of guilt, right? Because you're, I'm the daughter, I'm the wife, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm not a family caregiver. I, there's no burden. I love this person. And so there's a lot of judgment around the burden that people feel financially, physically, and emotionally around having to do this type of care. And so the, the family caregivers are feeling unseen. They're feeling afraid to reach out and say, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I need help. And so to see a film which shows it in this verite fashion and shows the experience that so many family caregivers are going through, I think is very validating for people. Yeah. Like when Rick says, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, I thought, yeah, you know, when my father was dying, I told the hospice worker, if he doesn't die soon, I might, you know, because I just, and I wasn't even bearing the burden of the care. I mean, he was in a skilled nursing facility because we needed that kind of care, but emotionally and in every other way, I was his caretaker, you know, and it's overwhelming. It is. And you know, what's interesting and kind of counterintuitive is that family members who are caregivers from afar, who aren't living in the home with the person, are actually often spending more of their money. In fact, twice, some of the data I've seen is twice as much money out of their own pockets and are suffering a lot of stress. So there's stress whether you're in the home doing the caregiving in person with your elbows deep. And there's also tremendous stress, even if you're across the country or in another place with the person in the nursing facility. It is a very stressful role and responsibility that we must acknowledge and provide more support for in society. When I've shown this film, we've created a workshop for family caregivers themselves. And we put about 70 people through this workshop. It was pretty moving to see the experience, not only of this workshop with a lot of practical 
strategies for these family caregivers for mobilizing and mustering their resources and how to learn, you know, to reach out to connect with resources, which they may not be able to do or may not have done. But also the sense of, again, mutual recognition and support It's almost like a support group experience. These people telling their stories one after the other, so similar and so exhausting and so painful. And to just have that support function, I think, for these workshops that we did, I thought was pretty profound. There are a lot of places out there, adult day programs and the Jewish Family and Children's Services and, you know, Family Caregiver Alliance that actually create, really have support groups for family caregivers themselves that can be very, very helpful as well. So, you know, my hope is that some of these groups will say, hey, we want to we want to use caregiver love story in our training in order to uh, just provide a 24 minute visual experience for family caregivers to help them understand that they're not alone and understand that they need to mobilize to get more help and support. We've also shown the film to groups of medical students, medical residents. In fact, our, our program for medical uh, student medical residents just won an award at the American College of Physicians. And the experience I had in showing the film to those groups um, was really profound as well, um, because these are not caregivers. These were medical residents, of course, many of whom have had caregiving experience themselves. But I saw when the lights came on, half of the students in, in this one group that we did were crying. I realized in watching this film, remembering cases that they had had, where they had been so excited about the patient's progress, but what they had missed in having this interaction with this patient and not really accounting for what was going on with the family caregiver. And, and, and that was really emotional for them. So if, if I'm the family member with a sick person who's about to get discharged from the hospital who chooses, and it doesn't even need to be hospice, right? Like there's caregiving after surgery, there's caregiving in all sorts of things that aren't even end of life situations. What kinds of questions should family members be asking the discharge people at the hospital so they really understand what they're getting into? As they leave. I mean, hospice is one specific area of caregiving and it's important. And it's what the film is talking about. But I'm also thinking just more generally about how do you advocate for yourself in a discharge situation so that you have some support or at least some understanding of what you're going to be asked to do? Well, you just raised a really, really important point. So let's make sure that we take a moment to focus on this this particular aspect. Caregivers who have access to hospice are a small proportion of the caregiving population. That's true. The hospice support is a perk. It's it's an extra that most people won't have access to because most people requiring care are not qualified to receive hospice services. So let's really remind ourselves of that. This population, people like Rick are a minority who have this extra privilege of having hospice access. So most people don't have that. And they're at home with a chronically ill person or an aging, frail person who is not qualified for hospice, and they don't have access to these things. Maybe they get a little bit of home support that's that's not hospice coming into the home. But again, it's less than you're going to get. It's less holistic and it's less intense than what you're going to get from hospice. So we've got to remember that. And and then there's the whole group of caregivers who are taking care of young children or children with disabilities. This is a massive, massive group of people. So I think. One of the basic principles about being a caregiver that we all need to think about and prepare for and do, in a way, advanced care planning around. Because advanced care planning is not just about whether or not you want to use a ventilator as you approach the end of your life. Advanced care planning is also about how will you be taken care of at home in the context of your family if you are requiring care? Who's going to do it? 
Is it going to be the oldest daughter? And who are you going to do that planning with? Lawyers aren't going to ask you those questions. Doctors often don't ask you those questions. Your financial advisor is not going to ask you those questions. Nobody is really asking you or giving you the opportunity to think through this scenario in a structured, proactive, effective way. Again, you raise an excellent point. I mean, when you're talking about advanced care planning, the things that we typically think of advanced care planning, like do you want to use a ventilator? Do you want to get CPR? You might be lucky enough to have a healthcare team that helps you think that through. Maybe you have a lawyer like you, Liza, who will sit down and say, hey, we got to talk about advanced care planning. Most people don't even have access to that. But this is another type of advanced care planning that doesn't fall under the purview of the healthcare system necessarily. It should, I would argue, but it doesn't. And so this is something where those proactive of us need to start thinking in our families and with our friends and family. And I've started talking to my parents about it. It's really hard. These are hard conversations to have. My parents are in their early 80s. They're very independent, very doing, thank God, knock wood well. But we, uh, what's the plan? What's going to happen when my parents start needing support? How are my sister and I, who lives in New Orleans, going to manage? What do my parents want? You know, my parents are very uncomfortable with the idea of burdening their daughters. But at the same time, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of my parents going into a nursing facility. So we've got to come up with a plan. And, and the plan has to have many different scenarios because we don't know what it will be. It's really about getting deeper into what are the things that are most important to you about the way you want to live your life. And what most people say is they don't want to be a burden on their loved ones. So all the more reason to start thinking about this right now and planning how you're going to muster other support. For example, let me just give you a personal example. And I, and I haven't even yet really talked about this with my parents and I need to because their preferences are ultimately going to have to mix with my preferences and abilities in order to create the best approach depending on how things go. But what I would want to do is figure out how much money we would have to spend on ancillary support. And by the way, it's really expensive. Most people can't afford that. So how do you use, if you have a little bit of spare cash to put towards getting external help, what kinds of things are going to be most important for you to use that money towards? Who in your in your friend group and your family is going to be able to come in and provide relief? What happens if one person takes primary care of the parent over the course of time, whether there's hospice involved or not, and they want to go on a vacation. So what other sibling is going to come in and fly in and be the person who's mostly in the house with mom and dad? I mean, these are all individual decisions, individual choices that that are going to be different for every family, but that kind of planning has to start happening before anything happens so that people aren't caught unawares and unprepared. Which I think is the norm. Most people are caught just dealing with the situation as it unfolds in in an ad hoc way, right? That's exactly right. And I'll tell you, you know, since the film came out, I have, you know, I've been invited to to speak on many podcasts. There's a, an amazing woman named Roseanne Corcoran who has something called Daughterhood, the podcast, which is about just about caregiver burden. And her mother just died after many years of her caring for her. And it's it's a classic story of the frog in the boiling water. Like you're just in there at first and you're kind of doing this and you're doing that task. And then all of a sudden, like you look back and you realize, oh my God, I'm the only sibling caring for mom and dad. I've got four other siblings, but we just never kind of arranged for respite. And, and it, it becomes a situation where one person just gets burnt out. There are many, many, many families where one sibling simply ref- will refuse and not want to be involved, or maybe both siblings will not want to be involved. But again, make a plan, make a plan in advance. I don't want to just leave people feeling like, oh my, like one more overwhelming thing. Here's the problem. It, it is one more overwhelming thing. 
because you cannot, you have to go through family caregiver burden in a way that's going to make it as unsuicidal as possible. But it, but you, you have to go through, it's going to be painful. It's, you can't make this go away. This is one of those societal responsibilities that is, let's, let's just use the word. It is burdensome. If, if we didn't have burdens around the end of life, people would die like this and no one would be would have any resp- caregiving responsibilities for them. The problem is that's not the way it works. And the problem is that our society currently is not set up to provide the types of care, the, the, the bathing, the shopping, the cleaning out the refrigerator that really are needed in most families. In some families, there will be a you know, somebody who will say, I'll take that on. I'll do that once a week. I'll do this once a week. But in, in, in most families, it just becomes overwhelming. But I, I do believe, Liza, that there are things that individual families can do to mitigate this a little bit. Well, Jessica, this sounds like such an overwhelming task for so many families. And I'm wondering if you could provide my listeners with some of the insights you gained from some of the workshops you did with caregivers so that they have a sense of how they could start coming up with a family plan. You know, there there's several steps. And the first is trying to figure out how to eke out just a little bit of self-care each week. And that sounds trite and it sounds maybe unimportant, but it's important. And then there's actually data that shows that family caregivers who take even a little bit of self-care time do better. So I think figuring that out and trying to make sure that you get at least a few hours a week of time for yourself is important. Another exercise that we do is talking about homegrown help and how you can identify the tasks that you think are personally going to be most helpful. It's different for everybody, right? For some people, it's really getting someone to bring in a casserole. For other people, don't bring me any more casseroles, clean up my fridge. And if you can sort of come up with a way of identifying what the tasks are that would really give you some relief if you got some support. I mean, Rick was doing tons of laundry. That is delegatable. If someone was coming in and doing some laundry for Rick, you know, uh, a few different people from the synagogue each, each week, that would have given him precious hours of time for that self-care that we just discussed. So figuring out this homegrown help concept of what are the tasks that you would find relief to delegate and then figuring out how to find the person to delegate. It could be through your, again, through your church or synagogue, a, commu- a committee that that sends somebody out to do a couple of loads of laundry, or it could be your friend Jane down the street who's willing to come in and do a couple of loads of laundry. Most people have some homegrown support that they can call on. And if you can just get it organized on a document, that can be very, very, I think, relieving. And then of course, there's this concept of learning about the resources that are out there in most communities. There's local, state, and federal resources that exist for family caregivers that different family caregivers are going to have access to, are going to be appropriate for them, et cetera. Understanding that those things exist, understanding where to go to get a little bit of counseling and support to figure out which ones you should approach, You know, whether it's through a social service agency, that there's so many of them that you can pick up and call as a family caregiver and say, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I need some help. There's an 800 number, which is on our list of resources on our website that that family caregivers can call for support. So I think there, there, there are resources that people can start to learn about and then can reach out to to help organize the formal resources that might be of benefit to them. So there are things to do that I think can help. That's great. And in the show notes uh, to this podcast, I'll post links to all of those things. And the last thing I think I would say is maybe the most important fundamental thing that a caregiver can do is understand that they are a caregiver. 
right? That give it a name, you know, suddenly realize that, oh, I'm not just this exhausted person taking my dad to the dentist. This is a thing. I am a family caregiver. I am not recognized. This is exhausting and burdensome and I need some help is actually the first step. And I bet a lot of people don't even think of themselves as caregivers. They just think of themselves as family members, right? If I had to say what the first step is, I would agree with you 100%. And that's why I think this film is so critically important because what it does again, in this verite style, is it it takes people into this world of caregiving and it shows them that this is a category of person that should be protected. This is a category of vulnerable person. This is an amazing guy, someone everybody comes away from this film respecting and caring about, and yet he's this caregiver who needs more help. And so if you can identify with that, whether you are a caregiver or you know a caregiver, I think that is the first step. Raising communal awareness about family caregiver burden is going to be, our, I think, our biggest lever. Getting legislative support to support family caregivers is our next big lever. And the third lever is the individual access of homegrown help and figuring out how to get support from the resources that exist out there so that you can do the best that you can. So Jessica, how can people see this movie? Well, the best way to figure that out is to go to our website, which is caregiveralovestory.com. And that has no punctuation in it, no capitalizations, just caregiveralovestory.com. And you can see places that it's going to be screened in the future, or you can contact us to figure out how to bring it to your own organization. We are really excited to share it with everybody and anyone who's interested, please reach out to us on the website. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I look forward to seeing more of your amazing films. It's been a total pleasure as always to speak with you and uh, hear your insights and share mine with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women in Wills. To find out more about today's guest and the Women in Wills project, including my new series of online courses, please visit the Women in Wills website at womeninwills.com. And please remember, the information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.